So Wes, what do you think of this concept of Linux speed runs? Oh, I'm hooked. I love it. I mean, I don't know if I'm up for it without reading some manuals first, but I like the idea. It wasn't it wasn't our idea. It was a post over at rachelbythebay.com. She's blogged quite a few times and this one caught our attention because well, honestly, it's kind of a neat just idea on the surface. You start with a minimal system and then get yourself to the point where you can do something meaningful like I don't know, download a picture from Reddit or get in an IRC chat room. Like, no Nano, no VI. Maybe you get Cat, okay, but, you know, certainly nothing like Netcat or FTP or Ruby or Python or any of it. Can you build yourself up from a bare bones Linux? Yeah, you could do that. Or another speedrun example could be, like, go through a testing spree and you know, test the latest Ubuntu release or test the latest Fedora and see how fast you can spin them up. But go through a sequence of things, and if you discover a bug, report it and time yourself. I wouldn't mind doing some Arch install speedruns. <laughs> I think we have, Wes. <laughs> friends, and welcome to episode 349 of your weekly Linux talk show. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hey there, Wes. Hello. Looking great today. I'm sorry about the plexiglass between us. Social distancing, you understand. Yeah, it's all right. I've got this nice suit on, and it's comfortable in here. I'm actually impressed it hasn't affected your audio quality. It's a special fabric. The mask is a little distracting. Wes, we have... One of these episodes that it felt really appropriate. We're going to do something you should never do today. Don't do what Wes and Chris are going to do. We're going to build a server like you should not. This is not a how-to episode. We're going to expose a server to the public internet, open up a telnet port, and have you pound on it to prove the scalability of a piece of hardware that we're going to be abusing in this demonstration. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. But we have, of course our steak and potatoes as well, like community news and our virtual lug time appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Happy, happy Linux Tuesday. Happy Linux Tuesday, everybody. Nice to see you back in there, Popey. Hello, Brent. It's been a little bit for you too. And we have a great lineup. There is 31 of our virtual lug in there right now. Wow. It's pretty great. We love you all. Yeah, it's really nice to see you there. We had a, we had a really fun pre-show over at jblive.tv. We do the show on Tuesdays at noon Pacific, but you can get that converted at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. So let's start out with a little community news before we get into abusing hardware around here. There's a couple of stories that caught our attention. And so this one was, in, was partially inspired by our weekend activities. It's a little Steam update. It's been a while since we've had one of these. It has. It has. In part, it's both news and our weekend. Um, it looks like really nice improvements for the AD- AMD, easy for me to say, Radeon graphic driver in version 5.8 of your Linux kernel will be landing. That'll be a good one. Lots of nice fixes in there. And then also NVIDIA just pushed out a new update that helps improve some recent game releases run on Proton, which I thought was just noteworthy because... NVIDIA is specifically updating their driver to support Proton now. Yeah, right. I think a lot of this is for Doom Eternal. And wow, I mean, does that mean there's users complaining and NVIDIA is actually being receptive? I guess. I mean, this is like what it, this is how it works on Windows. This is weird. This doesn't, this is just awkward, I think. First class? Yeah. So that's in the NVIDIA version 4.40.82 stable, long lived quote unquote Linux driver. Michael Arbel over at Pharonix has some really good coverage. But uh, I think I just want to take a moment and check in with you guys because I know myself, Wes, and Cheese have all been playing some Proton games recently. Uh, before we get to that, Popey mentioned some really interesting data on Ubuntu Podcast, just some numbers that he noticed when they covered it on a recent episode about the difference in graphics card usage. So, yeah, I was reading the article and digging into the the usual Steam survey, and it struck me just how many machines in the Steam survey run NVIDIA GPUs. And I know it's anecdotally we talk about how popular NVIDIA is, but I hear a lot in the community people saying, ah, oh, AMD is trouncing NVIDIA, and AMD is way more popular, and they've got much higher sales figures. But then when you look at the stats, it's nothing like it. There's way more like multiple more NVIDIA cards than there are uh, AMD cards. And in fact, there are more people with integrated Intel cards than there are AMD cards, according to the Steam stats, if I'm reading them correctly. That's how I've read them too. I just assume it's people that are super casual gaming, playing card games and simple games. And Hey, I'll raise my hand. I'm one of them. 
There's not many the Intel graphics will do for me, but there are some. That's really interesting. And I guess it's the video card you have, right? Sort of the reign of the default there. It just struck me that uh, I would have expected there to be some parity there. I would have expected NVIDIA and AMD to go toe-to-toe and have a similar spread of GPUs across the board from super high-end ones that, you know, the real gamers have down to the low-end entry-level ones. But it really wasn't like that. It's just NVIDIA from top to bottom and then a couple of AMD and a few Intel cards in there. It's really fast. It's worth a look. You really, really should go and dig into those theme stats sometimes. They're quite fascinating. What would your bet be for a year down the road? Uh, much the same. I, I, I don't see that everyone's going to suddenly throw away, like, however many, I can't remember the numbers, but it was something like of the top 40 cards in the list, 60% or so were NVIDIA. I can't see that many people throwing away their NVIDIA cards and replacing them with, with AMD overnight. I just can't see it. It'll be a long transition, if so. It's more like a next build, you think about it, and if AMD's still really kicking butt, then then that's probably the route you go. Well, and you can also pick up a 2080 right now, I think, for right around five dollars $600. So, you know, that was a $1,400 card six, eight months ago. Yowza. Yikes! I'll take one if you're buying cheese. Yeah, cheese, if you want to... Yeah, God dang, that is... I... I would need to see hard data that proves that you have any real advantage with those cards under Linux. I will... I will couch that saying perhaps maybe under Windows in certain circumstances, for sure, but I'm just not really sure if Linux games are fully taking advantage of it. I'd love to see the data that says they are. If you're going to invest $600, (laughs) just you could buy a whole computer for that and play on the graphics that it comes with and maybe not notice a huge difference. I know, that's old man Chris speaking, but... But that frame rate, Chris, the frame rate. So I've been playing over the weekend Batman Arkham City on Proton, and it's pretty good. It's... Um, I, I really actually don't have any complaints. Even on the eGPU, it's worked pretty well. I've only played for about two hours, so I don't have a ton of experience. So perhaps it gets, I don't know, maybe it doesn't work well. But this one's rated as gold on ProtonDB. So I think that's to take. It works pretty good. Some people have had some crashes. I have not. But I love, love, love the amount of games that are available now via Proton. And when I spent a month on the Mac about a month ago now, I was shocked that the Mac has such a crappy game selection, which I believe there's actually more Steam users using the Mac. But there's, when you consider Proton, way more games available for Linux. And then when you add the fact that you can get a much wider range of gaming hardware that runs Linux. Yeah. You're not just stuck on whatever Mac you bought. Yeah, it's way better on the Linux platform, despite what the numbers may. What a weird switch of scenario. It really is. It's it's I mean, fantastic. Yeah. Totally. So what have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing Risk of Rain, too. Well, I started off playing some Tabletop Simulator, which I'm pleased to note does have a native Linux build, which worked beautifully. I hadn't had Steam installed for a while. I like gaming, but I'm, I'm very much a casual gamer when I have time, you know? Uh, and as many folks are doing these days, I was having a, a virtual video hangout with some folks, and they were all <laughs> going to start playing. I'd never played Risk of Rain 2 before. It's a third-person shooter, roguelike, a lot of fun, lots of fun en- enemies to it shoot and kill. super fun, yeah, right? And I was like, okay, well... It's been a while since I tried Proton. It it's, has platinum support over on ProtonDB. Yeah. Let's yeah. give it a go. Yeah, when you said you tried it and I looked it up on ProtonDB, I said, oh, so you must have had no problem playing this. So this is where me being a little bit of a newbie to Proton maybe wasn't the best. I had just reinstalled Steam. I you know installed everything that I needed to go along with it. I tried a couple other Proton games and that worked. This one, the launcher would load up, a little, little scroll bar going, you know, loading the game. And then nothing. Just it even even sometimes it would say it was running, but nothing showing up on my screen. So I had to go dig in and try to enable logging, and still nothing. And eventually, I found some post somewhere that reminded me I didn't I didn't have the Mesa Vulcan drivers. Oh yeah. So one little package, and then it was perfect. Yeah, and some distributions make that a little more discoverable than others. And there's other ways of installing it that sometimes pull in some of those dependencies. Right. Yeah. In this case, I was just installing Steam right out of app. But so once that got no, com- no complaints at all, and it even ran on this ThinkPad right here with integrated graphics. Really? I mean, I did turn the settings down a little bit, but that was fine. Worked on the Intel chip, huh? That's right. So you're one of those uh, numbers there. And um, like me, your experience was probably like you would have no idea this was a, a wine no, application. Not at, not at all. Didn't have to mess around with wine or bottles or any of that nonsense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I love it so much. So what about you, Cheesy? What have you been playing? Is it on Proton? Yeah, it's on Proton. It's platinum level. It's uh, Raft. 
essentially you float around on a raft, try not to get eaten by a shark, and you can play with, I think, up to four people. No, this sounds great. It's a super fun game. Uh, you build out your raft and you kind of float to these different islands and then eventually you can unlock a, a radio that'll allow you to get beacons so you can direct toward different islands and you essentially just pick up ocean trash the entire game and, uh, build your raft with it. It's, it's a really fun game. Um, works right out of the box. I uh, haven't had any issues, any crashes or anything like that, uh, running on top of a RX 580 and it's, it's, it's a super fun game. I played on with, you know, for hours on end with it and um, never had any issues. You know what I'm thinking is we need to do a game sesh between you, me and Dylan and, uh, you know, get a little raft going. This sounds like something he'd love. Game on. That was his birthday today. Happy birthday, birthday, Dylan. Dylan Dylan turns 11 years old. Wow. Which the the thing that really blows my mind about that is uh, it was right around when he was born that I was like, I'm going serious with with the whole podcasting thing. Wow. So it's been 11 years since it's been my full-time job. 11 years full-time podcasting. Can you believe that? That doesn't seem And in possible. his world, it's totally normal, right? He's grown up with that. Like, oh, yeah, my, my pop's just a full-time podcaster. Yeah he's, got a, yeah, he's got this building we go to that's his studio for podcasting. It's really, it's really kind, of, it's kind of remarkable. And uh, he and I have been loving, loving playing games via Steam on his laptop, and I have it on my laptop, and it's just been awesome. So I'm really pleased with the state of Proton. I know there was some issues around, like, uh, development capacity for it, but so far it really seems to be kicking ass. And now... Uh, both AMD and NVIDIA are spending resources on development time to make games work. Um, it's it's not perfect. It's not native games. It's not the ideal s- scenario. But you'd be surprised how often weird abstraction layers like this exist in the gaming industry. I mean, it's one, it's just, it's just very technically clever. I'm very impressed with the work. And two, I mean, it might be a good long-term play in the sense of, all right, well, once you start seeing how many folks on Linux are willing to play these games once they work... That's some good data for perhaps more native games down the line. So some really good game suggestions, too. Uh, I really have been enjoying Batman Arkham City. It's it's a little bit on rails, but at the same time, you can fly around Arkham City and it gives you the instructions you need to feel like you're playing the game like a competent person when you're <laughs> not necessarily. So I like it if you're not uh, of a serious as a gamer. Uh, Risk of Rain 2 was Wes's. That looks like a lot of freaking fun. And then Raft, which I'm installing after the show from Cheese there, uh, will have links to uh, their Proton pages and stuff. In the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 349. If you've got any great picks yourself, why not give us an email at linuxunplugged.com slash contact. Now, there's some news that just broke that uh, Popey brought to our attention before we hit record that Wes and I are still chewing on. And it's GitHub's huge announcement that it is now free for Teams. Nat Friedman writes on the GitHub blog, we're happy to announce we're making private repositories with unlimited collaborators available to all GitHub accounts. All of the core of GitHub features are now free for everyone to use. This means teams can now manage their work together in one place. CICD, project management, code review, packages, all of that, and actually a whole lot more. We want everyone to be able to ship great software on the platform developers love. So this also very practically means I'm no longer paying a subscription for private repositories. Yeah, you got a free plan now, buddy. Hey-o. Uh, but you spotted a comment that Nat Friedman made about this on Hacker News, which I think adds some context to this. Yeah, he wrote, We've wanted to make this change for the last 18 months, but needed, and this part's key, needed our enterprise business to be big enough to enable the free use of GitHub by the rest of the world. In general, we think that every developer on Earth should be able to use GitHub for their work. So it's great to remove that as a barrier. Is it a strategic move, Computer Kid? That would make sense since they are very competitive. Since Microsoft bought GitHub, GitLab has been kind of gaining more users since a lot of people aren't trusting Microsoft and moving over to GitLab. So it would make sense that they're trying to get another one up. It seems like a competitive move. Against GitLab. And just at the end of last month, GitLab moved a bunch of stuff, you know, that had previously been in there, their private version over to the the free version. Uh, There's also some good comparisons in that same Hacker News thread around what things you might, you know, the difference between what's free in GitLab, what's free in GitHub. So there's still some reasons you might choose one over the other. And I'll also note there's been some some nuances here, as there always are. Sure, it's cheaper now, but for instance, you used to get, if you had this this old pro plan, you got a certain number of action minutes for the new GitHub actions, and on the free one, well, you get less 
And it turns out to get back to that same amount, you probably have to pay two times the price. So great news in general. Go check it out for whatever your particular needs are. I think, Bitmux, you make a good point that it's in Microsoft's interest for a lot of their other ancillary service to get as many people using GitHub as possible. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. It's like, well, we host code and we solve problems and we sell software. And it's like, I have a problem. I think I'd like to see if there's a solution for it. Oh, I'll check my own product, uh, GitHub. I'll look to see if somebody solved this problem for me. And they're, they're already been doing that for years and years, but now they own the platform. And so if they can bring the entirety of the world's development brain power under their, uh, under their roof, they'll take that. Thank you very much. You could also say that this is a win for the open source community to some regard, too, because, I mean, this now allows teams and, you know, to possibly develop applications uh, together where they might not have been able to do that otherwise or just couldn't afford the four bucks, the nine bucks a month to do so. So, I mean, I see it as kind of a positive move, but I can also see the uh, Microsoft aspect as well. And I've been following the whole GitHub and GitLab thing for a while now, so. I don't think that that debate's ever going to go away personally. Right. I mean, there's always the issue of um, it's easier now to use a proprietary platform and that is good and maybe a little bit bad too. Yeah, but it does ultimately mean there's going to be probably more software developed and published online that's more accessible to more people. So that's good. Seems like totally kind of a net win because it makes GitLab more competitive. It makes GitHub more competitive. It's kind of a win-win. And I also know, you know, some of the folks over at GitLab jumped in the comments too, of course. And it, it does seem like it's a friendly rival. You know, they're not out to get each other. No one's slashing throats here. It's, they're both making great products. There's use cases for everything. And um, thankfully, it's all powered by Git. It's true. All right, well, let's look a little ahead because just around the corner is the release of Ubuntu 20.04. We're cooking up a review right now. Weeks in the making going deep on this one. The uh, current target release date is April 23rd, 2020. So it's coming up just next week. So your Linux Unplugged program will likely have its review next week for you right on the nose. It's going to feature Linux 5.4 and WireGuard is essentially pre-plumbed. At least the holes are dug, right, Wes? You actually got it going on 2004 pretty easily. Yeah, I mean, the the module's already ready for you. So just, you know, mod pro WireGuard and away you go. And then the, you know, the tools, the WireGuard tools package is just an app to install away. Yes, that's nice. It's right there in the repo. Also, the snapshot system that's built into the ZFS file system that happens like every time you install a package, things like that, has seen a nice couple of tweaks, including one that makes it much, much, much quicker to go through the list of possible snapshots in Grub. And the way this works is you have just an entry in Grub, you select that, And that will have all of the previous snapshots, which you can boot from. And we're talking a pretty dramatic, uh, uh, like, 100 seconds sometimes for something to load. So well over a minute. What's wrong with my computer? Why won't it boot? (laughs) And now it's near instantaneous, uh, which is pretty great. And uh, I got some hands-on experience with that, which I'll try to include in my review next week. So it's coming pretty close, Wes. I know. I mean, you know, still experimental. And EXT4 is, of course, the default file system still. But from when this option first appeared, I'm really impressed. And it's it really, I think, points the way to the glorious snapshot future that we might all have. In Popey, I believe the testing week just wrapped up. That seems like it was pretty well attended, pretty well utilized. That was great. It was a community-organized test week. Uh, we, you know, we always have these test weeks, but we don't often have... Um, as much visibility and as many people participating and uh, Yusuf Phillips, who's active in the Ubuntu community, decided to take the bull by the horns and uh, did a whole load of promotion, invited a whole load of people from all the different Ubuntu flavors. So the XFC flavors of Ubuntu and Kubuntu and so on, get them all on board. So they all promoted it individually as a central effort and loads of people joined in and started testing this thing. And we got a whole bunch of bugs reported as a result because, you know, who knew software has bugs and um, put more work on the desktop team before the release, a week before the release. Whoopsie. But uh, yeah, it's really good. It's really, really good. It's a model that others could follow. I, I, I love that it was community started, too. That's really great. That's super cool. So uh, we'll give you our take on that next week. Now, before we get to exposing our Telnet server to the Internet and releasing the hounds uh, onto it, we do have just a little bit of housekeeping. 
So I start with some unfortunate news this week. You may have heard that we have ended the production immediately of Linux Action News, Choose Linux, and User Air, which uh, really stings because that was a personal favorite podcast of mine. It just hurts. I loved User Air. But after a lengthy internal investigation, a cloud guru management who owns the podcast, Jupiter Broadcasting, who we are all employed by, determined that they had no choice but to terminate Joe Resington's contract with a cloud guru, which means he'll no longer be on any Jupiter Broadcasting podcast or employed by a cloud guru effective immediately. So the ramifications of that are obviously pretty dramatic. Not only do we have to immediately cease production on some shows, which I have worked on essentially for 14 years, like Linux Action News, but it also does have an impact on this show. Joe joined us, I think, in the spring of 2018, mm-hmm. took our audio from amateur to pro. You know, that's when we went from a mixed stereo track where everybody was talking over each other. No edits. Right to multi-track, polished, syncing it up. You can tell. I mean, if you go back and listen to the archive, you can tell immediately. <laughs> it's just I couldn't get it across the line on my own. And I mean, it wasn't just that. I mean, you know, all the, all the care he had for the audio, the mastering, the mixing, the, the sound, but also the behind the scenes, the production work, the critiques of things we did wrong. Input on topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So his mark will always be on the show and on that, on that reign of shows that he had there. But moving forward, Drew will be editing and I can genuinely say he's a fantastic editor. It may sound slightly different, but I think it'll still sound great. Knowing Drew, it will. And uh, he, if you've heard him on Choose Linux, you've heard him on this show, uh, he's another one of these exceptional assets to our team, much like Joe was. And Drew will be taking over the editing of the show. And uh, I, I have confidence in his ability completely, but I just personally want to thank Joe for his time. One of the things that he did that was special for this show is he worked an an unrealistic schedule that meant that he was up until 4 or 5 a.m. to work on the show so that way we could get it out Tuesday night or Wednesday morning I mean, for people's commute. You can't just ask someone to shift their time zone eight hours. Yeah, and he did it so that way the audience got the show as fast as possible in the best quality as possible. And um, I think that's been something that we're going to try to continue to do. You know, it's, of course, within uh, expectations of the team's capability now. But uh, one one advantage that Drew has is he's not in London. He is, he is actually here in the States. So that will help time zone-wise. But Joe made a statement on Late Night Linux, which I recommend you go check out uh, at Late Night Linux. Go, go go subscribe in your favorite podcast catcher because uh, it's a great show anyways, but I, he covers it right there. He says all that really needs to be said in uh, that episode. So go check that out for his statement. I mean, I think there's not much more that can be said to it, right? That is just what it is. And uh, I will be putting my focus from what I did some of the time I spent on Linux Action News into the show. Um, One other adjustment that is happening is we are reducing the cadence of Linux headlines from every weekday to Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And some of the news that would have gone into LAN will go into headlines. So we'll just sort of divvy up some of that work. And that is the state of things for now. The plan is to keep trying to invest as much as we can, in fact, make Linux Unplugged bigger and better than ever. And uh, that's our focus now going forward. And I, I hope you will keep subscribed, linuxunplugged.com slash subscribe, and join us for the next series of episodes. Like, you know, as a team, we're just really trying to kind of put it all together still. It's still new for us, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not involved in the decision process, so I found out after it was official and um, just kind of dealing with it as as we can. And, and that's true for all of us. Yeah, so we're sorry. It was, you know, it's it's quick. Sometimes things go that way. It's not how we would have planned it, but... That's the world we live in. Yeah, that's the, you know, we our our intention is always and always will be to try to give you as much notice before we wrap up a show. But one of the things I've learned about the media business is sometimes that it just does not work that way, despite your best intentions. And I felt that way super strongly since the finale of Star Trek Voyager. Yes. Right. That was that is that is when I learned an important lesson that you need to brace yourself for the end of something you've been listening to or watching every week. And from that moment which is what, 2001? I, I, I don't know. From that moment forward, it has been a, a, a core belief of mine. So we always will strive to give you as much heads up as possible. Sometimes it is outside our control, though. A little bit of good news, though. 
Our good friend Heather from SciBite has rejoined us for a very special extra, the resilience of the Voyagers. These things were built to last. The Voyager probes? 42 years and counting. They probably won't be lasting much longer. In fact, we're about to enter a very crucial period where we will be dismantling some of these infrastructures that are on the planets. Yeah, the big old radio telescopes. So we will not be able to communicate. And uh, it's all detailed in the resilience of the Voyagers, about how they were built, about some of the special things about them. I tell you what, with everything going on right now, there was something about that episode I found super inspirational. So that's at extras.show slash 70. Right on the nose. So great to talk to Heather again, too. She's the best. So uh, you got to give that a go. Give that a go. And then uh, I want to also give a plug for something that's pretty neat that's developing in the community right now. It's the Lup Lug. Our virtual lug is also assembling an extra day in the week on Sunday. Sunday at noon Pacific. That's when we would normally do the show, our regular live time, but on Sunday. This Sunday, myself and Cheese are going to try to make in attendance. I think I'll be talking a little bit more about the hardware device we're using today. That's going to be something I'd like to talk about. Uh, I guess they did it last Sunday and they were saying it went for hours. You know, people come and go as they can. So it's a virtual lug. On the weekend, if you can't make it on a Tuesday, the virtual lug is assembling on the Mummel, spot, same spot, same bat time, just different bat day. And if you Google search Jupiter Colony Mumble, you'll get all of the information on how to connect. Just get Mumble installed from your repo and accept the fact that the certificate has expired, apparently. I love that we have another great reason to get the Mumble set up, you know, like join the lug, hang out, and then you'll be ready to go for Should Tuesday. I, I mean, I'm going to be doing it maybe with like a, a sparkly beverage with my feet up at the RV, I think. That's how I'm going to do it. It's going to be like totally chillax. Well, and I love that this is spawned out of the community. So the community thought, hey, let's get together and just have a have a lug. And I think this will be a great opportunity for everybody to learn a few little things. And from the, the sounds of it, there's no itinerary. It's just free flowing. So everybody will get a chance to chime in. Sounds like a fun time. It's just nice to chat with other people that know what you're talking about when you're talking about Linux stuff. That's just that's just a great, rewarding conversation. It'll be in the lobby of our Mumble server. So again, just Google search Jupiter Colony Mumble or join the Geekshed IRC, irc.geekshed.net. There is now a hashtag LUP Lug Geekshed channel that'll be going all the time. So irc.geekshed.net, hashtag LUP Lug, and people in there will probably help you get connected to the Mumble room if you have any problems. How great is that? Fantastic. And just a, a quick mention for our Telegram group at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. That is the persistent universe of this podcast. That is where the conversation continues, even when the podcast is not being produced or released, as well as conversations around the network. jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Telegram. The persistent universe, you know, it's like an MMO, but only chatting. Something like that. So we're going to do something that you really should never do. We are going to build what we think is near ideal Pine 64, Rock Pro 64 server grade setup. And I think this could be a candidate for just about anyone's home server. Anyone who needs to maybe run some Plex, some network monitoring, maybe a little authentication, some name resolution, some ad blocking. Maybe you want a self-hosted wiki, maybe a little home assistant. All of these things on one device that takes 12 volts of power. I mean, we know you've been a little bit obsessed with these, you know, mini computer boards with ARM. You've got Raspberry Pis, I think, basically everywhere in your That's RV true. now. I do. And I was I really like the Raspberry Pi because it feels like a platform that is well supported with a community around it. Right. Tons of guides, tons of images. I think, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the second to that now has become the Pine 64 boards. You know, I'm happy to see that you're kind of now falling into this addiction for single board computers i've been dealing with this for quite some time now my shelf is full of these boards but man the rock pro board is one of the best boards out there right now a great great little machine i'll tell you what put me over the top on it is it has a pci express slot so let that sink yeah, in for PCI a second pci express uh, by far man pci 4x and that meant that you could put a gigabit NIC in there, you could put a SATA expansion card in there, or you could do like we did. Again, not recommending you do this, but you could do like we did, and you could get an MVME <laughs> PCI adapter that will take an MVME drive and click it right into that PCI slot. And then you're doing 
like real data transfer speeds. Right. I mean, so this had been sitting around on the shelf for a little while. We hadn't had a chance to really check it out yet. And so, of course, when we first booted it up on the SD card, well, it was slow. I mean, it it felt almost somewhat perceptibly faster than the Raspberry Pi, but that's a hard thing to quantify at the command line. It didn't really seem significantly better. And then you combine that with the network effect and community effect of the Raspberry Pi, and you start to think, well, maybe... Right. I mean, you know, you have to find different images. There's like a, you know, it's a little bit different process, and they're, you know, custom builds from members in the community. And on top of all of that, how do you tell performance when everything's waiting on the disk? So the Rock Pro... 64 is special in a couple of ways. Uh, it has DDR4 RAM, LPD DDR4 RAM. So it's faster RAM than what's on the Raspberry Pi. It has gigabit Ethernet. It has an eMMC module slot. It has a full-size 4K support HDMI video out. It has USB 3. It has USB 2. And it has the 40 GPIO pins that you ex- it expect, as well as that PCI slot we mentioned. And a real-time clock. Okay, that's actually also worth mentioning, isn't it? Because the Pi doesn't have that, does it? Right. So that's also kind of great and kind of nice. And Cheesy, you have been sort of trying to get me to try it out for a while. And I think the part that where you convinced me was when you showed me like some of the NAS boxes people are building with this thing. Pine themselves actually sell a NAS case that you can buy, but um, there are all there are tons of 3D printed cases out there for the Pine 64. Um, and I think really what it comes down to is adding that PCIe lane, breaking that out, really kind of expands what you can do with this board. And you know, just like you said, this would be the perfect board even if you just slapped a couple of SATA drives in. The NAS case I think will support uh, two 3.5s or two 2.5s. Perfect for your little home file storage or home assistant or any any sort of, you know, Shinobi or anything like that. This would be the perfect box for that. This probably would be a lot better box for my for my Shinobi setup at the RV. So let's get into the setup here. I want to give you a price range, and I, I want to challenge you that if you're setting up a home server that is based on an x86 box right now, and you don't have more than 12 people living in your home, you need to really seriously consider what I'm talking about. But don't do what I do but you should think about it. So the Rock Pro 64 4 gigabyte system is $80. I'm rounding up here in all these numbers. I'm rounding up. A power adapter, which it will not come with, will cost you $12. You need 12-volt, 5-amp power adapter, non-switching. I bought a 250 gigabyte MVME Western Digital Blue Drive, standby on why I went blue, $55. And then the MVME PCI adapter, $11. So my total, rounding up for all of this, for a system that I think would compete with a NUC for most home server uses, 150 U.S. greenbacks, $150 total, all in for a system that is remarkably performant. And the other nice thing about the Rock Pro 64 4-gigabyte board is it is designated by Pine64 as a long-term support board, so they're committing to supplying it for five years. So that's until 2023 at least. Which is maybe one of those factors that helps build a community of people using it. When you add in this $11 PCIe adapter and then you just snap in the, the blue, and I went, with, I went with the one I'll have linked in the show notes because it supports the Western Digital Blue Drives. And I think possibly, according to their wiki, the Pine64 PCI MVME adapter does not support Western Digital Blue. The reason I opted to go for Blue is they have a good life cycle, but also you're not going to get the full beans with this disc on the Pine 64. The reality is the PCI bus is limited to such that you're going to get good performance, but you're not going to get high-end MVME performance. So here's the numbers you're going to see. It essentially works out. What did we decide, What did we figure out? It was a 30, 30 times speed difference? Just about, yeah. When we switched from an SD card to this MVME drive that took an $11 adapter and then a $55 West Digital Blue off Amazon, we went from a 22 megabyte a second transfer rate to around 610, 615 megabytes a second on average. And it peaks above that. And when you open up the disk IO like that, all of a sudden you truly appreciate what the Rock Pro 64's CPU is actually capable of. It is truly IO bound by that SD card or eMMC, I would assume. And you just open up the floodgates. It's remarkable what you can achieve. 
Uh, and so we thought we'd have a little bit of fun with it here on the podcast. Right. I mean, you, you said you wanted us to use it as a server. So we thought, why not set something up on Telnet that we could give out to folks that they could they could connect to? So are you ready for me to give out the URL? Yeah. All right. So uh, I would encourage you, if you're listening live right now, let's see how many connections this Pine 64, Rock Pro 64, running off an MVME can take. What we have here in a container, because what else would it be, is I believe it's the Star Wars New Hope in ASCII. That's right. The famous one, you, you know, you can see we've got a self-hosted version. So let's see how many ASCII streams of Star Wars The New Hope we can get going right now. Chat room, telnet to telnet.linuxunplugged.com. Everyone, telnet.linuxunplugged.com. Launch it up right now. Additionally, oh, three, four. Yeah, people are joining. Are they? All right, I'm going to open up two over here. Oh, yeah. Okay, I got mine going too. Now, if we can't bring this thing to its knees... We have prepared a punishment script. Oh, God. <laughs> that will spawn hundreds of Telnet sessions and start this thing. Now, in our original tests, off air, we were only able to test against the SD card, which was intrinsically bound by disk IO. I mean, every time you'd launch a new client, you'd be like, all right, well, I'll wait for it to read the text off the disk. All right, give it a go. I am currently getting the Star Wars scroll right now. Same. Yeah, I got the same. Oh, we've got, I mean, looks like like 20 plus already. All right. And uh, let's, how's it doing in that? Let's bring up the net data, Wes. Let's bring up the net data. So Wes and I are both monitoring on net data right now. Now you got to imagine this thing is rendering this ASCII out and then spitting it out over Telnet to how many, over 20 plus sessions, right? It's not. It's got to be 30 now. It's not a super complicated task, but it's a significant task. And right now it's sitting at a range of 8 to 14% CPU usage. Wow. And every time it's doing this, it's spinning up a whole bunch of Python in the back end, <laughs> reading these files. It's it's actually a, a, a kind of a, a, an IO heavy workload, surprisingly, on the back end. But we're not even we're not even really cracking 14%, 11% CPU usage right now. 22% RAM usage. A consistent near three megabits of Telnet data is coming out of this thing right now. Pure Telnet joy. <laughs> pure text. Pure three megabits of text. Um, do you want to launch the punishing scripts? Oh, oh, do I? Let's do it. Now, this script will launch hundreds of Telnet sessions at the Pine 64, Rock Pro 64. We just peaked up to 24% there for a second. I'm curious, do you have a rough guess on how many uh, connections we have there? Because we just hit 30% there for a second. Yeah, it looks like, well, let's let's pop over here. Oh, My movie's boy, we've still got going. A lot. I mean, it's, it's got to be 40, 50. My movie's still streaming. Yeah, mine too. What do you expect that we get thrown out of uh, so the internet session is closing or what? I don't know if it's going to freeze up or if our internet connection goes first. I'm curious to see which one it is. We're up to 32.2%, 32.6%. Actually, it's climbing pretty pretty fast. We're now at 33% RAM usage. It seems a little slower. 35. We almost just cracked 40% CPU. I did just load 200 additional telemetry clients. <laughs> I could do it. Yes, it just hit 44%. Oh, yeah, okay. So now we have like, uh, like what, nearly 300 Telnet sessions coming off this thing? I think it's getting slower now. I'll tell you, my laptop is handling it poorly. <laughs> Look at this. You can really start to see the load average increase on the box now. It's starting to get cooked. Oh, we just hit 45%. I think the internet connection's going to go. Do you have passive cooling on that one, or do you have some kind of ventilation? Just passive. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gone up not too much. It started around like uh, 46 or so, and now it's up to uh, 52 it's just out in the open. Like I said, don't build it like this. I think if I was going to build this for real, I would probably probably try to get some sort of cooling solution on it. But I'd want it to still be quiet, so it'd have to be somewhat passive. But there's no heat sink or anything on it right now. I didn't get anything like that in the box, so we're just using it out of the box. Ooh, oh, oh, we just hit 54% there on the old usage. Look at the net data charts. It's really starting to get up there now. I wonder if I could see how many network connections we have. Will it tell me? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Holy crap. We have over 400 and 419 active sessions right now on this box. Look at that line just rocking up there. And this thing's still going. I don't know if we can kill it. I don't know if we can do it. 
Do you Keep trying. Can that laptop handle? Can you launch another 200? I uh, can try. <laughs> Doesn't seem very convincing there. We're, we're running into the limits of what Wes's ThinkPad can handle. What do you think, Wes? All right, launching. If anybody listening live has a way to spawn multiple Telnet sessions, go ahead and do it. Just give us the number in the chat room so we can... Dude, I've got like 60 of them going here. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yeah, one easy way is if you if you launch a whole new terminal, Telnet can be a little fussy to run in the background, but if you just launch a whole new terminal and find whatever your terminal is uh, for consults-e, then you can pass in the Telnet command. So now we're at 47%, 45%. We're almost halfway pegged. It's really impressive. We're at 61% RAM usage now. We did hit 130 megabytes a second on the disk I.O. for a brief moment, but it's settling down now because I think the batch of sessions has, has settled. Isn't that impressive, though? I think, I think, point made, I mean, you have nearly, I wonder if we could see again. I mean, the number of connections is just staggering at this point. 500 active connections. Could you imagine doing this back in the day? Oh, we're up to like five megs of uh, yeah. pure text goodness. Five megs of pure text. How about that? Isn't that something? Well, the Pine 64 Rock Pro 64 gets my such a solid nod of approval after this modification that uh, this is what I'm buying from now on. So the other nice part is I just SSH'd back into the box and you can't tell anything, right? So it's not like it's a horrible experience for the admin while this is going on. <sighs> wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. You guys can keep throwing at it if you want. Um, but... Uh, this is this is a game changer as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just the, for the power and the price and all of that. It's just it's remarkable. So, Wes, we did a, a real quick brief modification to start loading the system off of the MVME versus the SD card. Uh, so job one was to attach the MVME, format it, label it, and then R-sync over the SD card to that, excluding like you know, proc and things like that. Um, but then there was another tweak that we had to make to get it to actually load from the MVME. Yeah, and maybe here's a good time to mention that we're running Manjaro ARM on this thing. Yes, thank you. We'd started out with Armbian, and that was working all right, but uh, Manjaro has been such a dream, partially because it already had kernel 5.6 ready to go, working perfectly, uh, and that also meant it was really easy. Right now, we're funneling this through a droplet back here so that you don't get the studio IP, yeah, and so that's just over Wirecard. That's a nice little advantage to using Manjaro on the Pine 64 is that the latest kernel means WireGuard's ready to go, and so you guys have all been doing this through, you're, you're going through a WireGuard connection and you didn't even know it. <laughs> so on top of that, it's handling the crypto for WireGuard like a freaking champ, I might add. So we that's really impressive. And it's meant that, you know, all the, the various tools we needed, getting, you know, Docker up and running, getting the benchmark tools we were using going, all that was easy because it was just right there in the repo. Yeah. And uh, with the, them focusing on the uh, uh, Pinebook, um, which is essentially the same internals as far as I'm understand it it means that this thing's pretty much ready to go so we grabbed i think it was actually labeled the pine book image for mm -hmm. this uh which has worked just fine to get it actually running on the nvmb was surprisingly easy uh, it looks like they're using the ext linux bootloader um, at least as part of the boot chain so really all we had to go do was modify extlinux.conf and change you know at the start it's just it's just the label brute so it finds that on the sd card we just repointed that at the nvme drive and no problems at all. I mean, we were a little skeptical. We hadn't tried this before, and we're both not that familiar with some of the, the booting on these ARM systems. I figured it wouldn't work. We'd have to pull the SD card off and, you know, change things around a couple times. Worked first time flawlessly. Yeah. And uh, we knew instantly because it booted in a blink. We had booted so fast, we are like, oh, well, that, that had to be it. And then, of course, we logged in and immediately confirmed it. And I just, I got to underscore all of this for 150 U.S. greenbacks off Amazon or wherever you get your Pine, Pine Rock Pro 64. So Manjaro was pretty great. Having WireGuard in there is really nice. There's also a bunch of other OSs, though. Cheese, you told me about Armbian recently. Yeah, so there's Armbian that's out there that uh, you know is developed for a lot of these other boards. But there are a ton of other builds available for this Rock Pro 64. I mean, if you want to get your uh, Slackware on, your uh, Open Media Vault might be a great solution if you're going to use this as a NAS, CentOS, uh, Manjaro, obviously, straight up Debian if you want. Um, you know, I would like to see maybe punishing it with other things as well. Like, I don't know, throwing a mumble server on there, seeing how many we could get on there, something like that. You're getting, you know, 610 megabits a second 
uh, read write on the disc compared to the 22 that you were getting off the SD card, you'd probably get anywhere from 100 to 150 uh, off an EMMC module. But at that 610 that you're getting off the NVMe, you could go with an SSD. Might be a little bit less expensive if you wanted to double up drives. Might cost you a little bit more money, but you're going to run around the 500 megabits a second um, speed on that. So you are gaining a little a little bit by using the NVMe. And, and I'm sure, like you said, whenever you initially logged in, you immediately were able to tell a difference. The Pine folks, they sell a Rock Pro like compatible uh, SAT adapter that has two ports on it, so you could easily probably do that. That's a great that's a great idea. I wasn't really clear on what kind of performance I was get. I didn't. I was just going to be happy with several hundred megabytes, but I'm pretty thrilled because it's it's peaked above six hundred too, which is nice. I'll tell you what, I'm building everything with this for my home server stuff. I'm going to keep my Pies. I think they're great, but in the future, I'm just going to use these. They're just that much faster. The PCI slot means that. I could use them for different tasks. Wes and I are already kind of thinking about how great you could really build a router out of this thing if you just put a nice gigabit NIC in that PCI slot. Yeah, I think uh, over the weekend I saw Ryan Huber, uh, who, one of the Nebula devs we've had on the show, and he's got himself a little Pi router. This seems like it'd be a great upgrade for that. Yeah, 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 especially because it'd be right there on the PCI bus. It sort of it sort of sets my benchmark now for any kind of small board computer. It needs to have PCI Express like this is the game changer for me when it comes to these devices. Uh, and Manjaro has been super solid on there. I look forward to also trying Ubuntu. I don't know if Ubuntu, is there an Ubuntu image for, I don't think. Oh, no, I did. I, see, I yeah, saw an 1804 some. one at least. I haven't seen a 2004 one. One of the things the Pine64 folks have is, I think it's a fork of Etcher that just downloads images that are compatible with the Pine64 and that you you select which one you have which model of device you have, and it downloads the image and then writes it for you to an SD card, which makes it really simple. I mean, it's a pretty big difference. I mean, an average of 610 megabytes a second versus 22, and then you're really fueling that processor. You combine that with the gigabit NIC, and it's remarkable what Linux can do on a computer that costs $80. To make this all happen, we discovered a handy little open source Python program called ASCII Telnet Server. Yeah, it does exactly what it sounds like. So we didn't have to go, you know, hammer some other person's server. Uh, and it's a pretty simple little Python script ready to go in a Docker container. And if you want to try it yourself, just hit the show notes. Why wouldn't you? So everybody kind of calmed down on the old uh, server punishment. And then Alex got in on the fun and he spawned a thousand sessions. And for a second there, we just hit 60% load. When he, after he spawned a thousand Telnet sessions to this thing, ten thousand sessions. Well, I'm sorry, what? Ten thousand sessions. At least that's what his numbers say. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. It really is impressive. It's it is using seventy four percent of the RAM now, <laughs> and and it is definitely loading up the CPU. Oh man, that is really nuts. Look at that thing go. It's hitting that disc too. That's fascinating. Every time a, a new batch starts, the disk I.O. really kicks up. But yeah, they, there are some optimizations that could be had in this Python program. Yeah, but it seems like it's really delivering. So that's pretty neat. That was fun. Thank you, everybody, for participating. And um, don't do what we do. But if you do, I think you're going to be impressed with the results. All right, how about some app picks before we get out of here? This is one we've been kicking around for a couple of weeks, but we finally had a chance to uh, sneak it in. It's Beats. And not the headphones. So yeah, this week, Beats, with its cute little Beat icon, uh, is a media library management system for obsessive music geeks, is how they label themselves. Uh, basically allowing you to pull all the metadata from your collection of music or media files, uh, allow you to easily tag those with music brains, discogs, or beat port, transcode your audio into any format that you'd like and even launch a web server from within Beats uh, to allow you to you know, query your, your music collection that way. Um, you can listen to your tracks there, uh, provided you, know, you have an HTML5 browser, which you wouldn't. Um, you know, it's a great little tool, command line, basically, and uh, get in there, tag all your music, and, and get it all sorted up the way you like to, to have your music tagged and sorted. And I think it's a cool little app. I think it's perfect for people who are obsessive about tagging their music and wanting their tags to be correct uh, or at least consistent. So get out there and give it a shot. 
Very nice. That is something I will check out. It's Beats, B-E-T-S. And we'll have a link in the notes if you want to check that out. It is nice to have that stuff figured out. I know I've got some old music collection and I just kind of stay away from it because I know it's a mess. Yeah. It's MIT licensed too, so uh, have at it, Haas. It's all yours. Um, That's pretty nice. Well, there you go. That's our episode for today. Be sure to check out the Ubuntu podcast where you can get more Popey. Be sure to check out TechSnap where you can get Wes Payne along with Jim Salter. And uh, check out my personal site, chrislast.com, where I have new projects and uh, whatnots over there as well as self-hosted where a lot of the stuff about things you run yourself on your own infrastructure or where you make compromises and host in the cloud are discussed on the self-hosted podcast at selfhosted.show. Any other business, Wes? Maybe you have some homework to finish watching Star Wars after the show. <laughs> I like this whole outfit. This quarantine outfit's good. I, I didn't know they sold quarantine outfits sort of styled as a pimp suit. It looks good on you. I mean, it's getting a little warm, but thankfully it's sealed up, so you can't smell anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of nice. It's kind of nice. Although that hole in the face mask so you can use the microphone seems like it invalidates the entire point. I'll have to look up the science yeah, on that. Yeah, I noticed you coughing into the mic, too. I don't like that. Check out linuxunplug.com slash 349 for notes for everything we talked about. Please join us live next Tuesday. We love having you here. It makes it that much better at jblive.tv, noon Pacific. And, of course, we're in that mumble room this Sunday at noon. See you next Tuesday! We've now hit 82%, 86% on the uh, Rock Pro 64 at 98% memory usage. Wow. I can't believe we haven't run out of sockets yet. This is unbelievable, really. Ooh, up to 61 degrees Celsius. And how is NetData even still responding? I don't even know. NetData, you're the best. How is this happening right now? How, what, what are we doing to accomplish 81% CPU usage? Oh, we're starting to get drops in the data. I just got my first drop in the data, so we're really getting there now. memory usage, by the way. We are doing a consistent 253 megabits of disk reading. Wow. Can I just read these stats for a second? 82% CPU usage, 253 megabits consistently from the disk, 98.1% RAM, and I think it may have just finally locked up. Are you still on the console over there? Are you still SSH'd in? Yeah, it's still responding. It looks like net data has died. Ah, uh, no, I, I lost just the got connection. Kicked. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got dropped too. Ah, <laughs> oh, this is so bad. I was just in the middle of the movie. <laughs>